In entrepreneurship, I think it's really easy to feel like I have to create something that's never been created before. And what I love about the learning that I have done in this realm is that actually some of the best entrepreneurial work takes what is already in existence and recasts the mold for something new. From the recording studios of Reconstructing Judaism, this is Trending Jewish with Brian Schwartzman and Rachel Burgess. And welcome back to another episode of Trending Jewish. We've missed you. We hope that you've missed us too. And we have a really interesting episode today as we're thinking about, as we're talking to people about innovation in the Jewish world. And why we should be innovators and what our Jewish leaders can do to become innovators. And yeah, it's kind of interesting because we talk about entrepreneurship and, and social entrepreneurship in a, in a Jewish space. And, and certainly before I worked here, I thought of entrepreneurship as something you do to start a business and make money and open a thousand Starbucks or, or, you know, build a better mousetrap or whatever. But, but here we're we're um, we're looking at the principles of entrepreneurship to give people access to new kinds of communal and spiritual experiences. So it's like a different kind of entrepreneurship that um, that our guests will kind of explain more fully. Exactly. I think one of the things that's really fascinating is like we do have that separation between um, the nonprofit sector, the people that are trying to like do some good work in the world and the business sector. And there's actually a lot of skills that come from the business sector that is very helpful in the nonprofit sector and for especially Jewish communities, as Jewish communities are changing so much, there's a lot of skills that you have to learn in order to be successful in business, like how to be a good listener, um, how to figure out what people are really needing, and how do you adapt your community in order to meet those needs. So I'm really excited to talk to our guests more about um, how to cultivate that in Jewish leaders and do that in the Jewish community and also to talk to one of our guests about how she's doing that in the local Jewish community right here in Philadelphia. So speaking of speaking of new things and our and our guest Beck Richmond, soon to be Rabbi Beck Richmond, we just have to say uh, Mazel Tov. Um, Beck, Beck uh, we recorded this episode in, in the latter uh latter stages of uh, of her pregnancy and and as she now uh, has since uh given birth to a healthy uh, baby boy so Who so is so adorable mazel tov there. mazel tov and congratulations back we are very very excited for you and we're also excited to see you the work that you are doing out in the world and we might have a new uh, potential listener there one one day yes and um speaking about other potential listeners we we um we once got to number seven, I think was our high on the iTunes list for Jewish uh, Jewish podcasts. So we wanna we wanna sh- get back there and shatter that mark. So um, so folks, uh, like us, uh, rate us on podcasts. Give us what what's the best rating we can get? Five. Five. I, five. Give us five star rating. At least five. <laughs> A plus plus. Uh, same for folks who find us through Podcast Addict, Google Play, Overcast, Castro. Um, rate us. It really helps uh, 
folks uh, folks find us. So anything else we usually do? Don't we usually ask uh, ask for people to keep the lights on in the studio? That's Yes, um, it actually is very, we found that it's very um, hard to podcast in the dark. Actually, we haven't tried this yet. Um, we might, that might be for a future podcast challenge. Um, but we do programs like this. Uh, thanks to supporters like you. So if you're interested in supporting our podcast or the Reconstructionist Movement, um, you can do so by going to reconstructingjudaism.org slash donate. All right. So I think it's time to introduce our guest. It's guests time. In the room. It is it, time. It's time. Yes. It's time. You're looking at me. Yes. I'm I'm thrilled to have our guests here. So we have two guests. Two guests. Today. We're both thrilled, but <laughs> we should. I should disclaim that in there. We're both thrilled. <laughs> um, all right. So we have um, we have Sid Weissman, who is the um, Reconstructing Judaism's assistant vice president for innovation and impact, and kind of expert on all things innovation, experimentation, and entrepreneurial in. Uh, in Jewish spaces. Um, Sid here directs the Reconstructionist uh, Learning Network, which is um, essentially a series of, uh, of webinars that, uh, that connect people together and uh, to discuss answers to Jewish questions that can't be Googled. She also teaches here in, uh, Jew as professor of Jewish education and impact and had previously served as director of innovation in congregational learning for the Jewish Education Project. Um, we also have Beck Richman, who is in her final year of rabbinical school at the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College. Beck is an artist, a scribe, a calligrapher, and um, is also a Wexner Graduate Fellow. And Beck is uh, here to talk about a new project uh, she's uh, launched with grant seed money. So. Welcome both to Sid and Beck. We are thrilled to have you and uh, ready to talk about uh, about social entrepreneurship. So glad to have you both here. We're so happy to be here. Thanks for <laughs> listening to our story. Thank you so much for having us. So I actually wanted to jump in um, to help put some context to everything. So this is a question I think I want to start with you, Sid, because one of the things that you teach as part of the rabbinical program is you teach entrepreneurship and social entrepreneurship. What What is this and why do our rabbis need to know this? So thank you for calling it social entrepreneurship because so often when people hear that word their their minds immediately go to oh, they're teaching people how to make money <laughs> that was actually one of our our thoughts as well we were like what do, what does entrepreneurship mean in this in this context so that word social really matters because it means bringing that innovative experimental let's try to solve an important problem to the work but not about in order to make more dollars, but to solve the problem of bringing more meaning to people's lives, to issues that matter in people's lives. And that's what social entrepreneurship is. And it brings the discipline that is in the business world to saying, 
people are yearning for meaning and people want to connect and we want to figure that out, let's bring the tools of the business world and apply it to those really critical questions in people's lives. So what are those tools that you're bringing from the business world that you're teaching to the rabbis? I would say one uh, principle is leave your solution at the door. And that is really hard for rabbis. Rabbis are encouraged to, their systems encourage them to say, hey, we got a problem here. Let's try to find a solution. And one of the tools of entrepreneurship is, yes, you may have a hunch. You may have an idea. Leave that solution at the door and go to the people. Uncover how people are really living. What are the real needs in their lives? And maybe the solution you had at the door was a good idea, but humbly say the solution is actually going to come out of learning. What are people doing with their daily lives? And there's a phrase called the pains and the gains. What are people kind of feeling the pinch and the pain they're trying to resolve? And what's the gain? What's that meaningful goal they're trying to achieve? And if you understand that more deeply, good chance the solution you came with belongs out the door and you got to be creative and say, okay, let's create something new. And again, you have to respond with humility. Even when I'm at that point, I've got to say, maybe that's not the right solution. And so a tool from the business world is called a minimum viable product. Let me test something kind of small, see how it does, see how it works. And then I'll learn what's helping people and what's not. And then I'll have to pivot and adapt. There's also this thing that you also bring up and you bring this up in your blog and um, you kind of touched on it a little bit just now, but you're you're talking about trying something and seeing whether or not it will work, which means that failure is almost part of the almost part of the process. So is that something that we should be encouraged or what why is that so important? Well, I confess I don't like failure. And I confess most people I meet don't like it either. And yet that's where the humility comes. You have to be willing to say, well, yeah, I'm creative. I can come up with a good idea and be prepared for that good idea not to work. And really the phrase that you hear in the entrepreneurial world is fail forward. So it's not like, yay, we messed up. It's so great. It's, you know what, we tried something, but look what we learned from it. And now I'm going to do something different. And frankly, that's a really hard stance to take in an organization who hires a rabbi to make things work, to make things right. So it's really hard to tell people we're going to test and we may very well fail, but we have to learn from it and move forward. There was a... Uh... A, t- a tennis player named uh, named Stan Rowinga from uh, Sweden, or sorry, Switzerland, who was always like just a rung below the elite players. And and one year he just came up with a slogan, "Fail better," mm. and and that was his mantra. And eventually he did he did win a number of important championships. So mm. it just seems so close to 
fail forward and my mind is always like two steps removed from tennis. So um, on, on that note, um, Beck, I just, I kind of wanted to get your perspective as a very soon to be rabbi, kind of what's, what's it like to, to learn entrepreneurial skills and, and, you know, have you felt that's really something you need to, to go out into the world? Hmm. It's a great question. Um, I've been honored to have the chance to learn with Sid and from Sid, um, both in the classroom and also independently. Um, and I received, I've been honored to receive several hour back grants um, and have had the chance to fail forward several times. And I, I strongly believe that the process of um, coming to understand exactly what Sid said, learning how to identify needs in a community among a population and honor those needs and set my own ideas of what is needed aside is um, an incredible life skill and an incredible skill as a rabbi to not impose or project my sense of what's good for community and for people, but instead to actually humble myself and step back and ask, hey, who are you? What do you need? What's working and what's not working? And I would say that my um, when, I, when I really came to accept that was... Uh, and embrace that was this past spring as I applied for the big Auerbach launch grant and spent quite a bit of time interviewing, talking with people about from the, from the community I hope to serve, um, not about my vision for what I thought might work, but really asking them, hey, what's worked for you with Jewish learning and what's not worked for you and what do you want to see? If you could, if you could dream big, what would it be? And it was an Im- incredibly empowering experience, I think, for the people I spoke with, and ended up being not only um, a tool for entrepreneurial growth, but also a, um, an opportunity for pastoral care. So, before we go forward, you dropped, um, you mentioned our, our our grant program. Would you guys um, mind explaining, sort of, for our broader for our audience, what? what our grant program is, what it hopes to achieve. Um, and I think that'll, that'll get us talking to, um, to, to Beck's project. So it's all in the name. We're reconstructing Judaism. And if you're going to reconstruct, you can't just talk about it. You actually have to do it. So we are so blessed to have a funder who provides grant money to rabbinical students and students who are recently graduated rabbis to be able to go experiment, to do just what Beck said, try something, learn from it. And every year we give a number of small grants allowing rabbis to test, experiment, And then one large grant of $20,000, which is a two-to-one matching grant. And we've been able to support uh, a rabbi creating a home-based havara, uh, a rabbinical student creating a podcast around death and mourning and building a community around that. And this year, we're so grateful to be supporting Beck, and she'll be sharing her work. And... Also, I kind of wanted to chime in because one of the things that you do as part of your work is you do a lot of work, even with other Jewish seminaries, about um, entrepreneurship and how do we teach these to our future Jewish leaders. Um, Is this something that's pretty unique, what this program is, or what are you you finding out? (laughs) The question we are asking here is, 
how do we nurture rabbis for a generation where the world has tilted way off its axis? Everything is changing. So now, how do you support rabbis to lead in that environment? And as much as that's been our work, and we're able to do that by offering a course and grant grants and mentoring, I was able to talk to different seminaries from the most traditional to the most liberal. And every one of those seminaries, when I raised the, that question, said, we are asking that question too. And for over a year, 10 rabbinical seminaries and colleges have been gathering, exploring what's our common work around that. And everybody's asking the same question. The truth is, we don't know the answer yet, but something very good is happening because we're coming together and trying to learn and solve a real-life problem. Wow, that's something that we don't see necessarily enough these days is people from different perspectives coming together to solve a problem. That's fabulous. Can I share one thing about social entrepreneurship that Beck touched on? Even though I said that we're bringing tools from the business world, that's their language. But when you start applying, they are deeply rabbinic spiritual practices to to listen to someone, to carry somebody's story, to be present, to say, what are your hopes and dreams? Tell me more about your journey. To be able to both have the confidence to try something and the humility to step back and know we, do, we don't own the world. We're operating and serving within it. They're all very rabbinic practices and consistent with what you would hope rabbis are able to interact in the world with. So there were quite a few different applications that came in, I'm sure, for the R for the big RBAC grants that Beck was able to get for her Beit Midrash. And we're going to definitely dive in. What about... Beck's projects, from your point of view, made it, this was something that needed this big launch grant. Every grant that comes in is really exciting and you want to fund it. I would say one reason that Beck's was chosen and we have a group of judges who read them and rate them and very hard decision Beck demonstrated the ability to see in a world where there's a lot of brokenness, where there's a lot of shards, Beck sees light. And that's the entrepreneurial spirit that instead of saying, I'm overwhelmed by all that isn't working, she has been able to say how clearly she sees that light and that energizes her. And in her grant report, what we saw was example after example of how she's slowly, slowly gathering the sparks, meeting with people, testing, going across the country and doing some study. And what do you know? When small sparks are gathered together, what happens? You have a bright flame. And that's really that spirit came through so strongly in her grand proposal. 
let's let's talk turkey what are we what are we talking about what's what's this project about what's who's it for where is it based great great question um so i i want to answer your question first actually by um just circling back to the question about a Beit Midrash. Um, so the grant application that I submitted was to build a Beit Midrash, a house of learning, um, based in Mount Airy, which is the community that um, many of our rabbis and students live in, um, close to RRC, um, and uh, specifically housed at Germantown Jewish Center. The um, that was the grant that I applied for and the grant that I am pursuing with them, some encouragement for modification is actually um, itself an example of what entrepreneurship I think should be, um, which is not to just build something, but to try and experiment. So just to say that the goal for this year is not to end the year having built a Beit Midrash, but to have spent the year experimenting with different <clears throat> different modalities of um of learning and opportunities for engaging people who are not who haven't traditionally been engaged and who haven't been involved in um, shul or synagogue life, and to see what holds, what works, and use that learning as a foundation for growth. Um, so, I want to start by um, I guess I'll start by just addressing this question of the Beit Midrash, which is not a new concept. Um, and in entrepreneurship, I think it's really easy to feel like. Oh, I have to totally reinvent the wheel. I have to start fresh. I have to create something that's never been created before. And what I love about the learning that I have done in this realm is that actually some of the best entrepreneurial work takes from um, what is already in existence and remolds it, um, recasts that, recasts the mold for something new. So um, a Beit Midrash is a house of learning. There's precedent in our tradition. Um, there's evidence in our tradition that Batei Midrash, houses of learning, have been around for a long time. The rabbis in the Talmud talk about the house of learning. Um, so this is not new. This is not new to us. But um, specifically in America, outside of Orthodox communities, there was a large drop-off of the existence of the Beit Midrash as a center point for Jewish learning in communities and in synagogue life, specifically after World War II when communities began a process of suburbanization and moving um, out of city centers. And people, the synagogue became, I would say that one one thing that, had, that has happened over time is that the synagogue has become less of a place of... Um, less of a place for uh, social gathering and learning and more a place that's focused on liturgy and ritual and Shabbos practice. And a lot of shuls, a lot of non-Orthodox shuls have become really Shabbos shuls, not um, week-long places of um, gathering for folks. Um, what is amazing about the Beit Midrash, though, is that it allows people to come together and ask big questions and feel a claim to the tradition. Um, but... The Beit Midrash, in its ancient form and in much of until until pretty recently, was not a place that was open to much of the community. It was not a place that was open to people who hadn't been learning, who didn't have who are who, who didn't have Jewish literacy. It was not a place that was welcoming to people who aren't men. It was not a place that was welcoming to people who are queer. It was not a place that was welcoming for different modalities of learning beyond talking about text. Um, and what's happened in the last um, 10 to 15 years in North America 
one amazing thing that's happened is that there's been what I would call a renaissance or a reemergence of the Beit Midrash in creative ways. Um, organizations like Hadar, um, Svara, and the Jewish Studio Project and others are working to reintroduce the Beit Midrash to communities as as another mode of spiritual practice and engagement. Um, so one of the things that I found interesting when you were talking about the Beit Midrash is that you add the word spiritual, but it comes from a context of actually more education. So in your view, what is that connection between spirituality and education? It's a great question. I think um, specifically in the Beit Midrash, there's a, a pedagogical model. There's a pedagogy of chavruta-based um, learning, partner-based learning. And in that learning model, um, the teacher is not standing at the front of the room and telling students, this is how things are, this is what the text says, this is what you are going to know. Got it? Good, great, moving on. Um, it's The Beit Midrash flips that model on its head and says... Um, Actually, here's here's something that we want you to learn. Here's a text that you're going to learn. You're going to find a partner. You're going to sit. You're going to study. But you're not as you as you study. You're going to ask big questions, and you're going to meander into um, questions about your own life and the way that this text relates to your life. Um, there's been a lot of research, um, which I'm happy to share at another time, or you know, provide resources on. But there's a lot of research about the. Um, value and uniqueness of chavruta learning that lets a pair of students ask each other questions that spark thought about their own lives and about meaning in the world. So the learning becomes not just about imparting facts, but about understanding one's place in the world, one's place in relationship to text. And it can be a spiritual process. It's pretty hard to explain how it happens um, outside of the learning. But I would say that for many people, there's something spiritual in the content that's learned. But there's also something spiritual about sitting with someone else and um, learning to listen to their ideas when they're different from yours, learning to express your opinion um, when you're scared that it's going to be challenged. And specifically asking questions that are about meaning, which is what much of our textual tradition um, raises for us to ask. So I think I both want to understand a little better how this is going to work and gain a clearer picture of, of how this is sort of living out the entrepreneurial model and and or or method. And my hunch is it has something to do with with the model, with you're sort of an independent outside entity partnering with a with a synagogue, and in this case, a pretty unique synagogue um, in 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 Philadelphia, which our, our listeners don't know is sort of in in an area where a lot of people are you know live in close proximity and can can walk to synagogue, and 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 it has a number of different communities within 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 the synagogue itself. So I guess it's. You know, we talked about what's not new, but is is the relationship with the synagogue something that is potentially new? It's a great question. Um, so first, to your point about the the shul, Germantown Jewish Center is an incredibly special place, and I was so honored to have the opportunity to serve there as their rabbinic intern um, during my second year of rabbinical school. Um, 
during um, what's often known as white flight, um, a, a, a phenomenon whereby many um, white folks left the city center and moved to the suburbs um, in the post-war period, there were some shuls that decided to stay in the city, and Germantown Jewish Center was among them. So Germantown Jewish Center is located in the city of Philadelphia and has been since it was born. Um, and in my grant application, I included some graphics and research showing exactly what you just shared, that there are, there are quite a lot of people who live very close to the shul, which means that it is a unique setup of a community gathering space. Um, to your question about if this model of bringing a Beit Midrash into a shul is unique, um, I will say that uh, Hadar, for example, is an incredible center of Jewish learning and pioneer in this renaissance of the Beit Midrash and expanding who gets to come in. Um, and they are um, housed at West End Synagogue um, in Manhattan. So there's definitely precedent for um a related organization or a part of an organ or a part of a shul that's going to be a Beit Midrash to exist within the shul walls, but it hasn't it hasn't taken off in as far as I know in many different communities around the country. Our president, Deborah Waxman, recently said to me, when she travels the country, many lay leaders will say to her, How do you engage the unengaged? How do you connect with the millennials? And she said, I tell them what we're teaching here at the college, which is go talk to them, go understand them. And that's part of what is unique about what Beck is doing is she's not sending a flyer and an email, just come. She's going out to people who don't belong, who are not engaged, and understanding their stories, building relationship with them, and cultivating an ideas and connection through that go out and be among the people. I would say the second thing that feels really unique is that sometimes synagogues are feeling afraid of these new inventions, of these go out and do it different, or we're not going to support a new initiative because you're not bringing people to be members. Something that's happening at Germantown and starting to happen in other synagogues is saying, instead of saying, we only support projects if you will be a member, our congregation starting to say, okay, let's explore a relationship, a collaboration, some connection with an initiative that isn't about bringing new members to our congregation, but about finding new ways of engaging people with absolutely zero guarantee or thought. That means they're going to eventually join. But synagogues can serve the community in these ways of um, supporting nascent organizations like what Beck is doing. And I would say that one important difference in this model is operating out of a place of opportunity rather than out of a place of urgent scarcity. 
So one of the things that I'm actually curious about and also tying back into some of these questions about um, – you know, listening to the people and leaving your ideas at the door and trying to find out what people really need in order, um, I guess, in this case, to actually engage with their Judaism in a new way um, or actually in an old way that is now beginning to come back. How, what kind of research did you do in Mount Airy that made you think this is the perfect place for a bait midrash? That's a great question. Um, First of all, I'll just say that, that there have to be people. <laughs> um, and there's a lot of people in Mount Airy who are, many of whom are members of shuls, not only Germantown Jewish Center, there are many other shuls in the area, but there are a lot of Jews living in Mount Airy. Um, it's in the city, which means that for people who are, it, it, it's more of a central um, gathering place. And um, from the geographic um data analysis, from the analysis that um, I did, well, I didn't do it, from the geographic analysis that I hired someone to do um, of where folks are living, there's a high concentration of people living close to shul. And I will say that from my interviews with people and from conversations about what what limits you from getting to programming and to shul and to gathering with other people, pretty much the most common response was scheduling and time. So having knowing that there are a lot of people who live close to this place and knowing that one of the biggest burdens is scheduling and finding space and time to get to learning um, feels like at the very least we should be providing learning and making opportunities that that alleviate as much of that burden as possible. Um, and a lot of that is about proximity to home. So I know, um, full disclosure: I've I've spoken to Sid uh, before this <laughs> before this podcast. We we actually work together, so I've nice I've, to meet you, Brian. Good to meet you too. Yeah, and and I've heard you talk many many times about um, testing testing hypotheses, and and one one hypothesis I um I noted in the in some of the the documentation for for this project is. Is sort of the idea that you know people of of all levels of or or different levels of knowledge would would be interested in a Beit Midrash where where texts are taught in the original and then and that's that's possible I guess is is, is part of is part of that hypothesis. I mean, my working assumption and probably the working assumption of a lot of people would be you need a fair amount of Judaic, Hebrew, Aramaic knowledge to study ancient rabbinic text in, in the original. So I wonder if either or both of you could, could speak to that. I just saw it back shaking, shaking your shaking, head now. Shut me down. All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will say that, of course, if, if you're going to study a text in a language that is not your native language, knowing that other language, of course, makes it easier. But it is far from impossible to access and learn that text in the original nonetheless. Um, I'll say that I became a student at Sfara this summer, which is a traditionally radical yeshiva. And they, at Sfara, the only thing that you have to do to learn in the Sfara Beit Midrash is know your Aleph Bet. Um, and they're actually, they have skills, uh, they have teachers and tools to help you get there if you need help. 
And when you show up at a Svara program, I went to queer Talmud camp. When you show up at a program, everyone in the room is learning the exact same text, regardless of if that person has just learned their Aleph Bet for the sake of being there or has been learning Gemara for their entire life. Um, and it's pretty incredible. I'll say just briefly that I think what I, I did a teacher training with them this past summer and what goes into making that possible is an immense amount of work on the teacher and facilitators uh, part to ensure that there are hint sheets and guides for how to look up um, how to look up words. If you can recognize what a word is and find it on on the page you're learning and on the page that's the hint sheet, you can get a direction for how to find what that word means. Um, so it's not impossible at all. And I'll say that starting this weekend, actually, um, I'm going to be helping to facilitate a class led by Rabbi Sarah Lev, who's a teacher here at RRC and an amazing, amazing Talmud scholar. We're teaching a, um, a we're facilitating a queer text study group and we're experimenting. We are not using um we're not using a model that we've seen before, but we're taking from different models and different um, pedagogies that we have worked with and seen and are experimenting with opening that up to people of every um, every skill level. So there are people signed up who um, we know have been learning Talmud and learning rabbinic Hebrew for a long time and people who don't know the Aleph Bet. And we'll see how it goes. This is an, a gift of an opportunity to be able to experiment Um and try that learning together. It's also not a straight line from Beck meeting someone, having coffee, hearing their story, and then somebody saying, sign me up. And part of when I meet with Beck, I love hearing what she's uncovering about the steps from, hey, I want to hear your story, to eventually, yeah, I actually want to do some study. Beck, you told me a great story at Sukkot that somebody came, had been, I don't want to tell the story. Yeah. You tell it. it. It gave me shivers. Okay, so I'll tell you I'll tell you what I remember, and you can fill in <laughs> if there's something I've left out. Um, one of my dear, dear friends, um, one of my dear friends who I met as a kid at summer camp, uh, now lives in Philadelphia, and um, he is some. My partner also grew up with at, we, my partner and I met at the summer camp. So my partner and I have known this friend since we were children, um, and we invited him over to come to our sukkah for a meal. And at the end of the meal, um, before everyone left, I said to I said to the group, before everyone goes, I'd love to bench. I would love to. Um, say thanks after this meal. So we began benching and I looked up and saw this friend of mine with a grin that spanned across his face. And I know that he is not engaged in Jewish community. He's not engaged in ritual practice. He's not, he doesn't go to shul. He doesn't, he's not part of organized Jewish community much. Um, but so it was, but he remembered the, he remembered the words of benching from being at summer camp. And I could see this. I could see that something was happening for him. And afterwards, I said, I said, hey, what was going on there for you? It looked like something was really something transformative was happening for you there. And he said, I never 
I never think about this anymore. I had no idea that I remembered these words. And it's so amazing to feel the nostalgia with you. And I love this. And this is exactly what I needed. This is exactly the kind of spiritual um, grounding that I that I needed. And so for him, um, it's not a matter of getting him. I would say that the success is not like is not going from zero to 60 from um not that not learning is zero, but it's not going from his place of being unengaged in traditional, um, being unengaged in Jewish institutions to getting him in the door for Jewish learning. But it's about saying like, hey, what is what is your place of um, what is your place of spiritual encounter and spiritual moving going to be that I can pick up on? And um, from that encounter have decided that for him and for other folks who are maybe in a position like his, the the Beit Midrash doesn't need to just be in a building. It can also be in my house. Um, it can be a place where people are coming to gather for Havdalah or for other ritual for um, for singing and for using um, different modalities to elicit emotion and um, kind of a spiritual in. And we'll see where we go from there. But I think Sid's right to recognize that this is not linear. It's not as though there's a um, a starting point that is not good and an ending point that is right. Um, I think that what I have learned so far is that people need to be met where they're at and um, accompanied on their way. A big part of being a social entrepreneur is paying attention to data. And when you think data, you think numbers. But if you listen to Beck's story, she was practicing spiritual noticing and collecting data in that way. She saw the change in that person. She paused and, and took account of it. And that's really important data, but it's also a beautiful rabbinic practice of noticing the people, not counting heads, but noticing the change in people. Well, you mentioned before we hit the uh, the proverbial record button that you had a, a new a new name for the project, Tanvale. Yeah. Drum roll. Yeah. <laughs> There's the drum roll, and, and <laughs> I guess um, and is there anything else besides the name you could tell us about where it's going or how? folks out out in the world could learn more about it totally so um first i'll say that we as the bait midrash this is i i don't really know who we means right now but it means me and it means sid's mentorship and it means the people who are coming and the presence of something holy happening in this project we have a an, a working name which is to say that i want to be open to the possibility that as the masses grow and the people come that maybe we'll want a different name. And that's that's beautiful. There's so much precedent in our tradition for names changing um, as they need to. But for now, um, the project is called Kolenu Beit Midrash. And Kolenu means our voice. Um, and it, it means really one collective voice. And I picked this name because I think it speaks to three big areas that I hope um, this Beit Midrash is able to um, build on and grow from. One is the inclusion of voices that have been left out of learning traditionally. Um, and one group, for example, are queer voices. Um, so this first learning series that we're kicking off this weekend is a queer text 
group um, is going to be um, bringing people into learning in something called a Beit Midrash, a house of learning, who have traditionally not been welcome. And we are saying, actually, our voice, our voices as queer people, um, in fact, are welcome and are part of the broader voice of Torah learning as Jews. The second is um, providing new ways of giving voice, new methods of giving voice. And for me, this is, um, as a Jewish artist, I'm as an artist who makes art that is Jewish sometimes, um, I'm excited to use art as a modality for, um, as a new way of, of um giving voice to what has been learned and expanding what it means to do spiritual practice and textual learning beyond conversation and using art as a modality for expression of what's been learned and what has come up. Um, and the third is using um, music and song. Um, it's really exciting to be doing this project at Germantown Jewish Center among the reason, in addition to the reasons I've mentioned, but um, Joey Weisenberg, who um, is an incredible artist and musician um, and song leader and facilitator, is running, starting in September, a fellowship through the rising um, through the House of Rising Song or the Rising Song Institute. Um, Joy Weisenberg is going to be kicking off a fellowship in the fall um, connected to Hadar that's going to bring together um, musicians and folks who are interested in delving deeper into music, um, giving them nine months to do that project at Germantown Jewish Center. So there's a lot of energy specifically in that building around um, bringing new voices into music and into song. And I'm excited to collaborate with Joey and we have been in conversation and are really excited to work with each other to see what would it mean to have um, this learning again take place rooted in Jewish text, rooted in Jewish ideas, but expressed through song. So um, the idea behind Kolenu, One Collective Voice, is that that voice um, is a voice that has the sounds of many voices in it, and also a voice that maybe has a different tone than the voice that has reverberated out of the walls of the Beit Midrash um, for the past many, many, many years of Jewish tradition. It also seems very appropriate because leading up to creating this Beit Midrash, you also had to do a lot of listening to different voices too. So I think that's also a very nice recognition yeah. of that process that you went through. That's beautiful. Yeah. And I hope, I, I really appreciate that. And I hope that it's a constant reminder when people walk into Kolinu that, um, that it's a, a practice which is not, um, it's not, it's not ever complete. So I think before we go, I had one question for Sid, who is um, in charge of our Department for Innovation and Impact. And you've been doing this RBAC grant program. You've been teaching this entrepreneurship class. Um, you go out into the world and you are constantly learning about organizations that are um, trying to do new and different things, especially in the Jewish world. Um, from your vantage point, what does it look, what does the Jewish world, what does the Jewish community look like now from your vantage point? That is a big question. <laughs> <laughs> 
I do think it looks different, and I think it's so exciting. I think the spaces, all the spaces that Beck mentioned that are inviting people in, all the projects that are there, are living in a new ecosystem where synagogues are thriving. So now when you look at the map, you see bright lights from the synagogues that are thriving and all these new open doors, new ways, whether in person, like what Beck uh, Beck is describing, or like what we have with RitualWell.org, this amazing space where people are gathering online to talk about deep questions like, how do I forgive? How do I wait for forgiveness? People are able to bring their deep existential questions without judgment in many new spaces in our Jewish community. And that's unbelievably exciting. I think the future is only going to have more of that. Um, If I can, I just want to share one quick quote from someone from an interview I had. Um, And it was a quote that um, was from a a, a new learner and a very similar quote I heard a very similar thing shared by an advanced learner, and it's, I want things to be intense, intentional, and beautiful, full and rich. So I'm I'm so honored to have an opportunity to, um, I'm so honored to have an opportunity to build space for learners who haven't been in the door before and for learners who have and want that intensity and that growth and that richness. Um, and I really want to thank again the um, Auerbach grant and the donors for their generosity in making this possible. Great. Thank you both very, very much for being here and uh, back sharing about your bait meat rush. And I cannot wait to see how this continues to grow. And um, this is very exciting. So thank you both very much for being here. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you so much for joining us. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. And you can also check out our website with other resources as well at trendingjewish.fireside.fm. And if you like Trending Jewish, you like the work that we're doing, um, please feel free. We would greatly appreciate it if you could help support our work. And you can do that by going to reconstructingjudaism.org slash donate. Thank you very much for listening, and we look forward to seeing you next time.